Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Investing behavior, asset allocations. We're going to talk super. We're going to talk markets. We're going to talk volatility. We're going to talk listed investment companies, scandal much. We're going to talk ETFs. We're going to talk about everything. And I will introduce our special guest to you in just one moment. But before I do, we can't do this episode without Sharesies. So thank you to Sharesies for partnering with us to bring you this Tuesday show. If you haven't already, make sure you check out the new monthly pricing plans on the Sharesies app. Now, you can pay transaction fees as you invest, or you can set up a $5, $10, or $20 monthly plan, giving you even more value for investing regularly. Check out the fees calculator on the Sharesies website to figure out which pricing option might suit you. And listen to this, everyone. Get $10 added to your account ready to invest when you sign up to the Sharesies app using the exclusive promo code MMM. All investing involves risks, T's and C's and fees apply. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Gemma Dale. Gemma is the director of SMSF, Self-Managed Superfund, and Investor Behavior at NAB Trade. She's a wealth of knowledge. I've known Gemma for many years, and in the financial advice industry, she got such a huge name because she was head of probably one of the best technical advice call centers for advisors. So when you're an advisor and you need to bounce technical strategy off people, Gemma headed up that department. She knows so much about investing, strategy, markets, everything. Gemma also hosts a podcast called Your Wealth, and a lot of you listen to that already. She's awesome. You'll have such a great listen to this episode. My name's Glenn James, and you are listening to My Millennial Money with Gemma Dale. Gemma, welcome to My Millennial Money. Hey, how are you doing? I'm very well. Hey, what do you think makes a good investor? Or... I don't know if you want to answer it a different way, like what makes a bad investor? Like, oh, what's your favorite way to answer that one? <laughs> <laughs> Million dollar question. I think the critical thing is you've got to decide to become an investor and do it properly. And I know that sounds incredibly, it almost sounds facetious, but a lot of people do leap into investing in ways that I find quite quite terrifying sometimes. No planning, no prep, no particularly good understanding of what they're trying to achieve. Uh, heard a story from someone, got excited, got caught up in the, uh, in the momentum of whatever the thing is and find themselves sort of quite quickly out of their depth. Or maybe it takes some time. Sometimes you get lucky and it works mm. out really well, but that doesn't make you a good investor, right? There's a good amount of luck in that scenario. So to my mind, you need to have a really good understanding of what kind of person you are and what kind of risk you're willing to take mm. and then have a really clear idea of where you're happy to put your money. I can give you a great example. My husband accidentally became a landlord at one point because he moved in with me and so the house that he had owned was rented out. Turns out he's the world's worst landlord. He 
absolutely hated every second of it. Every time we heard from a real estate agent about something the tenants needed or he had to pay something or whatever, he just couldn't bear the whole process. It was really stressful for him. It was a great example of something he just wasn't psychologically prepared to do. He just wanted to set and forget investment. He's fabulous with equities and with markets, very calm, no problem with that because he understands the risk. He understands what he's investing in. He's cool completely with that kind of thing. Not a landlord kind of guy. So <laughs> I think you need to know what kind of person you are, what you're comfortable in investing in, have a really clear idea of what sort of willingness you have for risk and what risk means to you because it's different for different people. And then get a plan in place. It's boring. Same advice for everybody, I imagine. Get a plan. Work out what you're doing. Yeah. And that's the whole thing. Like I said uh, many times, like not everyone, and I'm pro advice, I'm a retired or ex-financial advisor, whatever you want to say. And it's like, you don't always need a financial advisor, but you always need a strategy. Have a strategy, however small. And it kind of, I was just thinking before, it's like, I wonder if between the two of us, we can name some red flags of investing. Because while you're telling your story around that, um, almost the intention and you know, deciding that you want to be an investor. A friend was telling me the other day, and this is just unbelievable. He said, oh, mum called me and said, uh, I need to sell my house and put everything into Bitcoin because the housing market's going to collapse. The currency is like just extreme financial wildness. <laughs> and it's that, no, that's not investing. <laughs> that's um, drinking the Kool-Aid, wearing a tin hat, and going all in trying to strike it and get rich really fast and fee. So that's kind of like one end of the spectrum, right? And the other end of the spectrum is probably not taking any action at all. Yeah. Because that's also a, a danger with our money journey, right? Not taking action. Yeah. I look back and go, the best decisions you make are when you get started. Just getting started is such a critical step. And the earlier you get started, the less painful it is. When you get older, you're, you're carrying all this baggage. Your life is complex. You have issues that you have to deal with. Don't uh, talk about me on my <laughs> podcast like that. <laughs> we had a conversation before this started about whether or not I'm technically a millennial. Uh, so, but, yeah, you, you know, I, I have two children now and the risks I can take now are dramatically different to the risks I could take 20 mm. years ago. Mm. And I'm so grateful without a great deal of knowledge or expertise <laughs> that I got started in a lot of things, those decisions you make super early mm. when the risk is low because your time frame is enormous and the downside is capped because you can earn back whatever you lose, they're like that's an amazing window in your life when you can get started and you don't have the fear. Because when you're telling that story about the woman about to sell her house and go into Bitcoin, it doesn't sound like she's excited about Bitcoin. It sounds like she's terrified about the housing market, right? That sounds like a fear-based decision. Yeah, it's something wild. And the fact that she's telling everyone to sell their homes. And I, I wonder like another red flag with your money journey, and I like kind of chewing this stuff in real time, I don't invest to solve my problems. Like it's not, I'm, I'm not buying a weekly lotto ticket with investing because yeah. oh, I'll just keep, I'll find the right thing and all my problems will be solved. It is that I got to live my life on purpose with intention. 
by the way, I'm going to build some wealth here in the background. Yeah, yeah. That's so good. I saw a, I actually heard the other day, someone was actually talking about uh, psychology and going, it's not like you do one session and go, oh, awesome, I'm fixed now. You know, like you don't go to the gym and go, I had one great session and now I'm fit. Mm. And wealth is exactly the same. Like you don't make one good decision and all your money problems are solved forever. You know, every now and then that happens and we love those stories. The person who just managed to jag the million bagger, it's mm. not going to be a thousand bagger, right? Unless you're starting with a reasonable amount of cash. Uh, certainly not going to be a 10 bagger. It's highly unlikely that thing is going to make you forever. It's going to be a whole series of incremental mm. actions and there's a decision behind them. But the world is awesome now in that you can automate so much of it. And I think that's fantastic, right? It used not to be like that. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about when I first started when you had to go and, you know, ring up a broker and get someone to do things for you. And it was a boring, tedious process. And each time it was quite stressful. Whereas now you can do so many things in an automated way that make life really easy, but you still have to do it. Mm. So your role as head of investor behavior, what common behaviors are you trying to remove from the psyche of society (laughs) that's there for whatever reason? or instill into investors? Oh, it's such a good question. Uh, look, the m- amazing thing about my role, because you and I knew each other in a previous life when you were a financial planner and I worked with financial planners, generally helping them give better advice to their clients by dealing with some of the more complex stuff. And it was mostly dealing with very wealthy people whose tax needs and super needs were quite complex, not not the kinds of people you and I talk to now. Mm. And the most awesome part about moving out of that role where you believe that everyone needed really sophisticated, complex advice and into the role I have now where I work with an online broker and deal with clients who are self-directed, completely self-directed, they make all the decisions themselves, they might have an advisor in the background, Mm. is realising just how astute and thoughtful people are with their own money. Like there's a lot of... Uh, media out there implying that the average person's an idiot and makes terrible, wild decisions. And it was particularly prevalent during COVID when there was the Davy Day Trader stories and the, uh, the apes, the AMC GameStop stories and, you know, all this wild stuff, right? And the, the implication was generally, particularly younger people, stupid, wild trading, aggressive risk taking, no idea what they're doing. Mm. And, the joy of my job is we have hundreds of thousands of clients worth of data and we saw the exact opposite of that, right? People are really careful when it's their own money. They don't make wild decisions. Their worst case scenario is losing money. Mm. And so we found people making really pragmatic decisions that absolutely did start trading far more actively during COVID, but they were buying banks, BHP, yeah. <laughs> really boring stuff. So my job is very much about looking at what people are doing. We publish a lot of content. I have a podcast, that kind of stuff, trying to help educate people who are looking for more information. But generally speaking, when we look at what people actually do, it's about enhancing. It's not about starting from scratch because you're stupid. Mm. Most people are actually making really good decisions. Yeah. And for those who might not know, uh, Gemma did mention the podcast, uh, but Gemma used to be the head of one of the leading advice technical services in Australia. So 
you are very switched on and I envy your <laughs> switched onness. Um, so we used to read tax rulings. For that's right. So, so us advisors will call up and say, here's this strategy. <laughs> Is it crap or not? And they'll be like, yeah. uh, that looks Can like Swiss I cheese. Can get away with yeah. this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so tell us about the podcast uh, that you're running at the moment. So originally the intention, so it's called Your Wealth. The original intention was to talk about strategy because that's my background. What we found was markets were becoming increasingly interesting because I started about four years ago. And so we were leading into COVID, COVID came along. So we've become very markets focused, but I do talk about wealth creation strategies, retirement strategies and so on. But there's a lot of market talk in there as well. Currency, what's happening with the Australian market, what's mm. happening in the US, where are the opportunities presenting themselves, that kind of stuff too. Yeah. And I interview other people who are experts in those areas because I'm not an expert at everything. Actually, I, I listened to the um, the interview you did with Peter Thornhill. Oh, yeah. Um, we might unpack that later in the episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, please. <laughs> there's a couple of things there. Controversial things, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's all good. Do what you want. Um, but hey, like with investing and markets, and this is mm. probably a, a behavioral question. I don't know about you, but I don't know if it's technology, uh, news cycles, all that stuff, but day on day, week on week, market volatility seems more savage now than 15, 20 years ago. Is that a true statement? So, Factually, no. Right. Volatility has fallen dramatically over right. the last decade. It is very low at the moment. The last time we saw really high volatility, and volatility is a measure of how much prices move around. Yes. That's all it means. Yes. Uh, yeah, and there are technical definitions of volatility and we measure them. Volatility itself is very low at the moment as measured it was the last sort of peak during COVID. Yeah. That was when it was a bit crazy. And during the GFC, so there you're really volatile times. That's when the market's moving a lot. Right. Uh, you know, we will remember days when, I don't know if anyone else remembers this, I remember it extremely well, when the market fell 8% in a day during COVID in the middle of the day and closed up 4%. So that's a 12% range in one day. That's volatility. Yes. Yeah. Maybe, well, maybe it is more because my head's, on social media now more and following heaps of money people and everything's always crazy and savage and it's anecdotal, but it, it, yeah, if the data says I'm wrong, I'm, yeah, I'm very wrong. I think, look, some stock prices are really volatile. Mm. I think the point is more that there are so many people talking about markets all the time. Yeah. You know, when, when the GFC was happening, the internet was live and real. Mm. But for those of us who even in markets and working with clients who were exposed, you would get a package of information in the morning saying all of these dramatic things happened overnight. And then you wouldn't get another package of information until the next day. Whereas now we're getting continuous information. Mm. And to be frank, if you want to fill those column inches or that blog or that podcast, you have to talk about every teeny tiny thing that happened yeah. as if it's very exciting. Yeah, right. And to be frank, a lot of the time, you're trying to make some excitement out of it. And I say that because I work with a lot of journalists and I work with a lot of people who are market commentators. If you are trying to fill a day's worth of news just with market commentary, you have to talk about everything mm. and it's really overwhelming if you're on the other well, end. Well, maybe, you know, if I reframe my question to a statement, there's a lot more noise now. <laughs> oh, so much. <laughs> and the, so and much the noise, noise doesn't so mean, and, the, no. you know, I'm part of the noise, like... Um, 
welcome to life. I'm your host. But yeah, I don't know. So maybe that behavioral thing, like with our investing, how do we be removed from that noise? And so I, I like to think with my own investing, you know, I've got my strategy, I'm investing, you know, I got a text message this morning, your buy order has been placed. I buy two ETFs automatically every Wednesday. Why Wednesday? It's the middle of the week. No science to it. Um, <laughs> you're probably like, you fool, it should be Tuesday at 3 p.m. Um, <laughs> you're not doing it in the first half hour of the day though, right? Um, or the last half hour? You know what? I think it is the first half hour. That's the only problem that I have with it. Yeah. But you know, fast forward 20 years doesn't mean anything. Um, (laughs) So like how, like I set my strategy, uh, if inflation's happening, doesn't matter, I'm still buying shares. If um, interest rates rising, doesn't matter, I'm still buying shares. Like are there any golden tickets for people to learn how to remove themselves from, yeah, this noise and all this craziness that we hear online? I think it depends on how you look at volatility. Probably the first thing is volatility is not just bad news. Like it does present opportunities as well. COVID was the classic example, right? All the news was terrible. We've suddenly realised that there is a pandemic and it could be, it could be real. And millions of people could die. Mm. Like there was, you know, when we first went, oh God, this is actually, this is quite serious. Uh, and the market fell 30% in three weeks. What was fascinating to me was most clients we work with took that as a golden buying opportunity, Mm. right? So we had an 80-20 buy-sell split at that time. Normally it's sort of, you know, 52-48. There's always always a higher proportion of buys and sells over time, which is great, right, because you want to see people accumulating wealth and buying equities and buying ETFs and so on over time. We don't want to see everybody selling. That's terrible. Uh, But during that period, like there's this massive swing to buying because people understood tomorrow the world will still be standing. Qantas might have a horrific 12 months, but maybe they'll still be standing at the end of that. That was one of our top 10 stocks. The banks will still be here. BHP will still be here. And I kind of want to buy them now because they're getting hammered. So volatility does present opportunities at the moment. As I said, volatility is actually very low. So tuning out the noise Mm. is just very much about switching off from prices. If you're the kind of person who tracks the prices of everything you own every day, that can be quite stressful. And to your point, like if you're buying every week, that's a long-term strategy. You know, you're looking to, and the the demographic of people listening to this podcast, right, you guys have a long-term strategy in mind. Even I have a long-term strategy. You know, this is, in 10 years' time, what happened today will probably be irrelevant, maybe not during COVID, but for the rest of the time, it's largely relevant. There's not a lot of other things that I need daily news on. You probably don't need daily news on what's happening in your portfolio. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's the thing, like, I, I don't, look at my um, investments daily. And, you know, while, yeah, by the book, I shouldn't be buying automatically first thing. um, (laughs) There's no automated function on the platform to buy it automatically at lunchtime. Yeah. Yeah. So I would have bought it 12. I I might email and ask them. I'm like, hey. Mm, um, And just on that, why shouldn't we buy when the market first opens? So this is an ETF specific thing, but it does apply to other equities. One thing that absolutely, talking about investor behavior that became apparent at COVID, a lot of fund managers used to buy at the open because they felt like they had secret intel 
that we now get from the internet, uh, <laughs> everyone has access to what happens overnight. Um, and so they would buy at the open when, when prices were moving around quite a bit and they'd place their orders nice and early. And what happened during COVID was fund managers moved to buying toward the end of the day because retail investors are buying at the open. And I find this amazing. What was happening was retail investors watching what happened overnight, getting all of their news first thing in the morning, placing their trades before the market opened. And so at the open, prices go everywhere based on all of the different trades that have been put into trading platforms and then have to get executed at 10 a.m. or as the market opens as they come through in tranches. So with an ETF, what happens is because they have to buy everything in the index, they have to buy 200 things all at the same time, the market makers who facilitate that process on behalf of the ETF provider basically charge you more because they don't know what prices they're going to land at. So they go, ordinarily, we'd give you a split of 10 basis points or whatever. But if you open it, if you want to buy at 10 a.m., I'm going to charge you 50 because I don't know where prices are going to land and I might I might misprice it. Okay, my orders, I'm just looking at the text messages at <laughs> 10.36am. Well, it could be worse. Yeah. So they generally say don't do it in the first 30 minutes. Yeah, and that's maybe why the platform is set at 10.35 or 10.36. I don't know. But Yeah, that's very good. But this is the interesting point where there are Gemma engineers mm. and people that are really good and technical with money listening to this. There are people yeah. that will leave comments over Reddit that Glenn is a dickhead because he has an auto trade that happens within the first half hour of every day. However, yeah. based on my personality, if yeah. I was to turn that auto investing off and want to get cute and be like, oh, I'm going to optimise this fraction of a percent, I would do mm-hmm. worse off because I would get greedy, I would want to time the market and that's yeah. not my strategy <laughs> because I uh, shoot first, then think about aiming. And I'll have a better outcome if I just set every week what will be, will be, get on with my life. This this is super interesting to me because this is the don't let the great be the enemy of the good or the perfect be the enemy of the great or whatever yeah. the story is. Uh, <laughs> there's a great, great quote that I just got quite wrong. But effectively, the strategy you do, as imperfect as it may be, is vastly better than the one that's perfect, but you didn't execute it or you did it half-heartedly. They said the same thing with diets, mm. right? The diet you stick to is the best diet for yeah. you. Um, you know, <laughs> keto may be perfect, but if you eat a block of chocolate after you finished it, it sort of defeats the purpose. So I, I think that's completely sound in every way. If you have a thing that works for you, do that. Mm. One thing I will say again, coming back to the investors that we work with and that I see I'm fascinated by them because as planners, you and I were told you can't beat the market, right? And I did my thesis at uni on basically how difficult it is to beat the market. And there was one fund manager in the 12-year period I looked at who beat the market. And if I'd moved my time frame by a year either way, they would not have Mm. and it would have been somebody else, which is quite telling. Uh, But I'm relatively close to a handful of individuals whose strategies make perfect sense and work extremely well. And they do it with great enthusiasm and they execute extremely well. They dedicate their life to it or they've got a niche or whatever it might be. It would be a disaster for me. I would not be able to pull that off. I'd be, you know, picking up a kid from swimming and forget to put that trade on, whatever it might be. But it's really impressive people who've picked a strategy, that's what works for them and they do it. Mm. There's people who only trade five stocks and they actively trade them. We had one trader who literally traded 1% moves in bank stocks. Far out. That was it. 
right? That was their thing. And they made a ton of money out of it and it was very successful, but wouldn't work for somebody mm. else. So the thing that works for you, that's the one you got to go with, yeah. right? The one you do. So if we move along to, say, constructing portfolio, do you think, you know, regardless of the asset allocation of growth or defensive, we'll just assume an 80, 20, 80% growth, do you think there's an ideal asset allocation between AU, US and rest of the world stocks for, you know, a growth portion of a portfolio? I I put some question marks over this one. Everything's been heavily, heavily weighted US for a really mm. long time. If you look at the underlying component of any MISCI world or whatever, so if MISCI world is your, if you buy an ETF called world, like the world ETF, it's like 65% US. Yeah. Um, and much as they like to say they're world champions at absolutely everything, <laughs> you know, there are there are other places in the world, not just mm. the US. There are other continents, even. Uh, you know, so I, it's been an incredibly successful strategy investing in the US, right? Like they have performed exceptionally well over the last fifteen years, and so the performance of the US has been incredible. Do you believe it's going to continue to be incredible? Feel like that has to be your personal decision. Mm. I. I think when you look at in international in your asset allocation, you want to have a view. You don't want to kind of blindly go, I bought world and then find out later that you had 65 US, 65% US. So you understand what's in it. And if you're comfortable with that, go for it. Like we've got a ton of India, my husband and I. Um, Are you an old BRICS gal? I'm not an old BRICS. No, no, no. That's not my risk profile at all. It's just because they are now the, the, the most populous country in the world. Very, very young, very, very highly educated population. Kind of seems mad not to have some exposure to How that. do you get that exposure? Um, uh, we have an ETF. Yeah. A, a managed ETF. Sure. It's not just passive. Yeah. Um, Can I camp on that for as well for a second mm-hmm. as well? Because I want to swing back around and, and talk about mm-hmm. the case for um, active and managed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that old question. Yes. Um, look, I yeah. So we we sort of have a view about which countries we want to be exposed to, and felt that we'd done actually terribly well out of having exposure to the US. Didn't need any more exposure mm. to the US, and wanted some tilts to other things. Mm. And of those things, we weren't super enthused about Europe, and we were very enthused about India. Mm. That was roughly where we yeah. went, and a bit of emerging markets, which is mostly China. Let's be honest. So yeah. It's just knowing what's in your portfolio and being comfortable Mm. with it. If you want to see what the professionals in inverted commas use, you can go to any super fund and have a look at their asset allocation, dig down into their international, and it'll tell you what the sector and country exposures are. Mm. I think you have to note that they, but they benchmark themselves against each other. So there's a real disincentive for them to move dramatically away from indices. Mm. So if you want to have a massive tilt to India and your the future fund doesn't care, right? They can do what they want. Mm. But if you if you get uh, at the time of recording West, today, I, I did you see the news that came out this morning? Tell me this one. The so everyone, we're recording on Wednesday the thirtieth of August. I'm just gonna bring up AFR. I got an mm-hmm. alert. The future fund did a six percent year and it's yeah, right. increased its exposure to this is making really bad um, <laughs> podcasting. Oh, here we go. Oh, I'm logged out of my app. Oh, here we go. Future fund mar- warns markets are underpricing risk. 
And it has increased its exposure to local and global equities. Oh, local and global, was it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's gone, it's gone longer equities. So for those who might not know what the Future Fund is, mm. can you just give a 101? So you and I would know this from our days in financial planning. Uh, government employees in Australia, uh, federal in particular, have these amazing old school super funds that are generally pay you a fixed proportion of your final salary for the rest of your life. And that is a wonderful thing. It's also very expensive for the government Mm. to fund. So they carved off a ton of cash a while ago and invested it explicitly to provide for those pensions rather than having to pay it out of government revenue. Is that a good answer? Yeah, it's great. And then also the government pensions are carved out of the proposed $3 million super cap. Uh, What... uh Funny that. Okay, but going back, I got really sidetracked. Sorry, got lots of questions. Um, yeah, look at a variety of different pre-made portfolios at their yeah. asset allocation. And I always kind of say like, so the 101 Vanguard Diversified High Growth Fund, right? Mm. They have got a view based on their own data that there needs to be, I think they do 40% international. Um, there's a percentage of that portfolio that's hedged. That's their view. I always mm-hmm. thought it was interesting our previously fallen fearless leader, Hamish Douglas, um, his kind of view was I'll get exposure to China through Yum Brands on the US exchange. That's my view. That's how we do it. Um, mm. I think my own view, I don't really have any international ex-US ETFs or anything like that. I've just taken the view that um, most of the top 500 companies in the US are global. That is a fair assessment, Mm. I think. I I think it's been quite fascinating to see how, and you can see it on our platform and I love seeing this happen. It it used to be if you wanted to invest in international equities, particularly anywhere really, You had to have a pretty good understanding of that economy, that market, all those sorts of things. So if you wanted to invest in Walmart, you needed to know what Walmart was. So you would have had to go to the US and have a rough idea how Walmart works, how many. So you're either really good at reading company balance sheets and statements and understanding a company, and then you can compare it to other companies in that sector and so on. Mm. Now, if you like Apple because it's sitting in your pocket and on your desk at home, you can just buy Apple. That Consumers have so much exposure to tech now, to US products, that you can have a reasonably good idea of whether you like whether you like Apple better than Samsung, right? You've got the products right there. That used not to be true, right? Investors used to find it really difficult to assess international opportunities, so you would just outsource the whole thing. Now you can make a reasonable assessment yourself. And I reckon like most people in Europe probably have an Apple product in their pocket or in their bag. Most people have a Microsoft product. Most people are probably using NVIDIA chips. I mean, it's um, Amazon's global. So, yeah, it's interesting. And probably watch Netflix. Like, it's deeply embedded in our lives no matter where you live. Yeah. And like, everyone uses Facebook all around the world and all that stuff. And speaking of unethical companies, uh, (laughs) (laughs) so we we touched on before this active versus passive thing. Mm -hmm. And it's too nuanced to get so zealoted with saying you only use low cost index funds. That's fine if that's what you want to do. But if you want specific exposure to either cut out companies, so yeah. I want a, an ethical portfolio, like the Perpetual SRI Fund, that's ethical, that's an ETF, it's managed, I think it's done pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. You may 
have to have an active allocation. And the moment you go active anyway, we'll forget benchmarks because it's not the benchmark Mm. because you don't want anything in the benchmark. Mm. It's not your benchmark. That's right. So It's not yours. Talk to me about your own particular portfolio with that exposure to, you know, an active fund for that type of Mm -hmm. um, market. Yeah, it's... So I will say personally, uh, we have direct stocks, we have managed and we have passive. So we've got everything. And it's worth noting my husband and I both work in the industry and we have exposure to a lot of people and a lot of information. Which I helps. would say you're considered an investment professional. I'm considered a <laughs> bogan from Newcastle. <laughs> Look, we all feel like amateurs a lot of the time. Mm. One of our friends is a fund manager and, you know, you feel really dumb compared to him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's, you know, he's got insights and intel mm. uh, that we don't have and spends all day every day deeply researching companies, whereas mm. I like to skim the headlines and then just pick something. Um, yeah. yeah, so the... There are different levels of depth. And I, I meet traders who make the fundy look stupid, right? Because yeah. what they're into, that's their thing and they know better than anybody in that area. So it's quite interesting. Everyone's got their areas of expertise. The number of amazing investment professionals who wouldn't know anything about superannuation blows my mind uh, and they don't understand anything about the tax system. So it's quite interesting when you come from that broad-based background that you and I come from, which is kind of like how do you create wealth and manage it over time using all of the strategies available to you but without having the deep expertise versus the people who've got deep expertise. It's very interesting. Mm. Uh, so in terms of how we manage what we have, it's less sophisticated than it should be, I'm sure. <laughs> so we have a self-managed super fund. I will say that we do have one and yep. we waited until we reached a critical mass before we went yes. that way. Do I think it's appropriate for everyone? Definitely not. Do I think that there are amazing alternatives? Yes, I do. Uh, the administrative burden annoys me. I feel like we should be much better with data feeds and so on mm. than we are. So I I wouldn't advocate for an SMSF unless you've got specific needs, mm. to be frank, uh, particularly not if you're young. They mm. make sense as you get older. Most of the people I've met who have an SMSF are retired and they are usually expert professionals who've got a lot of time on their hands and really enjoy the process. They love doing it, right? And for them, it's just a, it's a new job. Yeah. They love it. That totally. Makes sense. Yeah. So in terms of how we allocate money uh, when we're investing, so outside of the sort of broader strategy, but when we're investing, we will look at asset allocation first. How much do we want in Aussie? How much do we want in international? We have very, very limited fixed income because we don't need it. We've got a really long time frame. So we have very few defensive assets. Mm, and we yep. look at that split between international. Oh, sorry. And we're also definitely not landlords. That's not our thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're bad at that. No yeah. one wants it. Didn't yeah. like the administrative burden, to be honest. Yeah. It's pain. Yeah. Um, so we are very markets focused. And we have sort of big, large cap exposure most of the time and then think about where we might like to have some tilt. So India's a tilt, right? Mm, Just yeah. a little, little kink, not a specky if you will. bet, but a bit yeah. of fun, you yeah. know, and believe in it, right? It's a great long-term story. So mm. India's a tilt. There's a few other tilts in there. Uh, when you come back to that question about active versus passive and particularly the ethical overlay, if that's important to you, it is important to me. Uh, and my parents are a classic example because they started this like decades ago when my dad was investing. 
I love individuals' ethical overlay. It makes me laugh, right? So my mom was like, no uranium, no gambling, right? Definitely not. Alcohol's fine. We both like a wine. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so so they, dad was like, fine. So we've got no tab corp or any of that kind of mm. stuff, but it was fine to hold Woolies before the endeavor split. Yes, Because, yes. you know, we spent a lot of time at Dan Murphy's. That's okay. Uh, so your ethical overlay can be really different. There's a lot of people who are sort of fairly anti uh, the energy sector, but very pro-lithium because they believe it's part of the transition, for example. So I always find it really interesting what your ethical overlay is. Mm. Uh, I really like investing in healthcare on a pro-ethical kind of front. I just mm. think that's a positive place to be, that kind of stuff. So there's your personal overlays that go on top of that too, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, before we have a break, like it's probably a worst-kept secret because the publishers put it up um, on Amazon accidentally through a data feed, but um, we've got a, an investing book coming out next year. Well, I delayed it because I couldn't be bothered writing it this year and um, <laughs> we're calling it the Quick Start Guide to Investing. That's the working title. Mm. And it's all about, you know, just getting in, getting started. And I'm really tempted to open like the first paragraph. It's like, it's okay if you just buy IOZ top 200 AU stocks and you're invested, you're diversified, it's Australian only, that's fine. Yeah. However, let's unpack this and just mm. learn actually what we're investing in because, you know, it's fine for me to go invest in this, do this, use that. Pro. That's cute. But if you don't know and you're not mm. engaged, when the shat hits the fan, you're going to sell mm. at the worst time because mm. you don't understand the process. So, yeah, all that to say... It's okay to have a bit of a, a 100% Aussie equity portfolio as your first cab off the rank. Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot of test and learn sounds wrong, but there's mm. a lot of dipping your toe in the water, getting a feel for it before you jump in head first. That's completely fine. And as I said, when I think back to how I got started, which was very random, right? Mm. Like nobody's going to write a book about that particular process. Mm. It's certainly not a guide, but it works because I was starting early and I kept trying and did different things and most of them worked out, right? That's yeah. not the worst outcome. Yeah. On my um, own kind of portfolio um, that's not super, I don't have any individual stocks and mm -hmm. I've just got three ETFs. Now, the reason, because it goes back to knowing who you are, mm. I'm like if I had a problem with a substance, we'll just use alcohol because we are talking about that before, mm. I can't actually have alcohol in the house. Yeah, right. At all. So mm. for me, um, I don't drink anyway, but like for me with investing, I can't have single stocks and chasing money because mm -hmm. it gets to dopamine-inducing gambling. Mm-hmm. And I can't. I just can't do it. It's just a rule in my life. Um, I'll on occasion. You remember the um, the book uh, Psychology of Money, Morgan Housel, like do ten percent of your portfolio for a bit of fun. Mm. Sure. I'll, if I see the odd specky or get a, a bit of a hot tip, I'll throw the odd bit of cash in. But my week on week, I just got to get out of the way because if there's alcohol in the house and I'm near it. <laughs> it's not ending well. And if there's single stocks and my portfolio is buying and selling year on year, trying to optimise with the lion's share of my portfolio, yeah, that's not going to end well either. 
I do find the optimization question really interesting. There's a lot of people out there who really struggle with that. Mm. And, you know, when I think about the questions I get when I'm talking to people, it's so much like I had this and I didn't sell it at the right time. I had this, but then I didn't buy enough of it. You know, like this real anxiety attached to often to winners, funnily enough, you know, a lot of anxiety attached to the timing of things. And we have universally this issue of, sort of anchoring on to the absolute peak price. Mm. Um, it happens in property all the time too where you know the price of the absolute best house in your suburb and despite the fact your house is definitely not the best house, you think you should get more than that because that was that was the most recent price or mm. whatever it might be. And in this anchoring to different prices is just so stressful. <laughs> so if you can't deal with it, you got to switch it off, right? You've got to find a way to move away from that. Totally. And it's so funny. I think the worst things ever are those clickbaity articles and quarterly <laughs> features, the 10 mm. best performing stocks or funds of the last 12 months. Because as humans, I go to the top of the pile, oh, that did 25% last 12 months. Oh, I'm going to put money in it mm. because it's a banger. And I'll tell you a funny story and I'll tell you what the fund was um, at the end when we pressed stop. I was presenting, I was like 28 years old, kind of a younger advisor. There was a, a real, she was very wealthy, this lady. And um, she actually said to me once, why should I take advice from you? You're a lot younger than me. Do you have more money than me? And I said to her, hey, with all due to respect, because I am quite younger than you, uh, I will never be able to be compared with you, but I can let you know of the 10 closest people in my world, I'm probably worth 10 times more than my friends. So and she's like, oh, oh, oh. So anyway. <laughs> Anyway, so I did some recommendations for her and I recommended a certain fund. I think it was in pension phase and uh, we wanted some like an imputation Aussie equities uh, dividend fund, recommended that. And she, she had a little money magazine with her, you know, and she's like, oh, interesting you recommended that fund. She pulled it out and it was like top 10 return. It was at the very top. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Didn't recommend it because it was at the top. I recommended it because of the strategy. So we're not putting more money into that just because it's a banger. Uh, We're keeping to our strategy here. Also, like past performance and future performance, the correlation is not perfect. Like it's it's quite disturbing when you – like the number of people who are obsessed with afterpay. There's a person I know in the industry who is in the industry, right? You would call him an investment professional who still talks about how many zip shares he had and how he sold them at this price and could have sold them at this price. Now, I bet he is thanking every God known to man Mm. that he sold them when he did. He didn't sell them at $12.00 fine, but he certainly didn't sell them at 50 cents. And so, you know, like, mate, let go of that one up there. Yeah. You know, you missed the downside. Well, you missed some of the downside anyway. (laughs) So, you know, you've got to stop anchoring to that precious price because the fact that it got to $12 does not mean it's going to 24 next year, right? Absolutely. Hey, we'll take a quick break and we'll be back right after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hold up. 
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Okay, we are back. Let's maybe move to some listener questions, shall we? Mm. Caitlin said... Is there a way for my de facto partner and I to have a joint investment account in both of our names? I kind of replied and said, yeah, most brokers or platforms will allow that. But I just wanted to ask, what are some considerations that uh, you would have to take into account uh, with a joint brokerage account or a joint um, investment platform wrap account? Yeah, yeah. So first things, and you and I both will have dealt with this in the past, de facto partners used not to be treated like married couples under the law. Now they are. Mm. So if you particularly are thinking about leaving your death benefit from your superannuation to a de facto partner, they're treated uh, very much like a spouse effectively. Your biggest issue is your tax. To be honest with you, there's two things. One is uh, I'm assuming you're in a committed relationship and you are investing together for a reason, that you are trying to achieve a joint outcome. Like if you have a joint account with someone, it's because you want to achieve something jointly. Uh, my husband and I have invested separately at different times, mostly for tax purposes, right? But everything else is joint and we treat our household assets and income jointly. So first thing, you're doing it because you want to achieve a joint outcome critical. Uh, and secondly, just think about your tax treatments. You know, if one of you has a really high income and one of you has a much lower income, it doesn't make any sense for you to invest jointly because the investment income is apportioned to you jointly. <laughs> so you're both going to be paying tax on it. If one of you is in the highest marginal rate, and one of you is much lower, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. So they're just sort of the primary things to consider. Mm. Ownership does matter. Yeah, absolutely. And often, it's too late to change the ownership down the road <laughs> without some it's, implications. So you really have yes. to just, yeah. CGT issues and all yep. of those sorts of things are a real pain. So yep. be quite thoughtful before you do it. Yeah. You know, you want to be sure that this is something that you are desiring to achieve jointly. Mm. Again, you know, in your advice career and with some of the stuff that I used to see, Things that made a lot of sense from an investment perspective didn't make sense when you looked at people's relationships. So that's always the other thing to consider. Yeah, absolutely. Katrina said, what do you do when you are bored with your investing but don't want to muck around as the investing choice makes sense? You just keep carrying on. <laughs> just keep shoveling yeah. money and live your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would love to be bored with my investing. That sounds amazing. It means it's working, yeah. right? If, it, if it's boring but you don't want to sell it, then it seems to be working. I, you did talk about the Morgan Housel mm. uh, sort of 10% fund money thing. If you would like to have some fun and you can afford it, critical point, if you can afford mm. it, if you've got more than enough working for you, 
have some fun money, right? And get interested in specky stocks and have a look at some of the fun stuff. Like if you want to do that, go for it. I, I'm fascinated by how many people genuinely enjoy that. And for them, it's a lot of fun. Go for it. But make sure you've locked away all the important stuff first. Absolutely. And fun fact, everyone listening, I got it. I woke up to an email at, what time was it? 2.30 a.m. from Morgan Housel's kind of agent person, Mm. She's going to check to see if he can come on the podcast. So trying to get Mr. Morgan on. Um, There's a question here from Sandra. If you want to invest for you and your family's future but have absolutely no time to give the activity or interest in investing, what can you do? E.g. pay extra off your mortgage, extra to super, save cash. Given we are working till later in life, uh, should we opt for a higher risk-based super approach for longer? e.g. past 45 years, is there a good mix of risk to take? There's a lot in that question. (laughs) I'm kind of being very vocal lately. It's like if you are under 50 years old and your super risk allocation is less than 80% growth, I need you to lean in and learn more about investing. Mm. I don't know if there's a case. Do you think they need to learn more or just go and look up their super fund and make their decision and do it? Whatever, yeah. Like I I want you to hear that statement. If you're under 50, Mm. I don't think there's a reasonable case um, because if a minimum hold time for a higher risk portfolio is 10 years, we know Mm. we can't touch that money for at least 10 years. So if you're under Mm. 50, you need to really look at your super and understand. And if you've got a 50-50 defensive growth, if you've got a... 20% 20% growth and 80% defensive, I need you to really lean in, you know, and increase your growth exposure. Like I'm trusting that people who are listening to this podcast already know where their super is invested. But if you don't, please go and find out. Yeah. It's also worth noting, it depends on who your super fund is, how they classify what's defensive and what's growth. And that has become increasingly challenging over the last little while. Yeah. You know, nobody uses the same definition. No, And so have a really good look at what you've got. It's boring. Yeah. Do it anyway. So just on her <laughs> question, like I've had clients um, and my parents are probably also a good example. They're just retired that all they did for their life was spend less than less than they earn, kept out of consumer debt, mm-hmm. salary sacrifice to super, mm-hmm. got to retirement, ta-da, money's not a problem. Yeah, nailed it. Um, I'm currently helping wind up an estate for someone who was single all her life and worked and bought CBA shares in the float and Woolworths shares in the floats. Gosh. And it was in an extraordinary situation, right? Extraordinary at the end Is of her Peter life. Peter Thornhill's fairy godmother. <laughs> could have been, could have been. But, yeah, but amazing, right? This person yeah. in an era when women didn't work much anyway mm. and she travelled around the world, did amazing things and but was not... I wouldn't have assumed particularly financially literate, but just made a handful of really good decisions. And to your point, Mm. didn't get into a lot of debt and certainly made sure she managed it if she did. We can't see any evidence of her having had any for a long time. She had uh, an employer super fund that she clearly had been contributing to. She'd worked in the health system and she bought a handful of shares. Like brilliant, Mm. brilliant. So it doesn't have to be complicated. When I look at that question in particular, I kind of go, okay, you need to make a list. Just break it down because it looks really complicated when you ask all the questions. Mm. But if you break it down, it's not that hard, right? If you have a mortgage, paying off more on that mortgage is a good thing. 
Yeah, yeah, particularly now. We used to always, when you know, when I first started working and I was doing financial plans for people, you would explain to people what the pre-tax rate of return of paying off your mortgage is. You basically gross it up by your tax rate, six and a bit percent, which is probably what you're paying. If you're on the highest marginal tax rate, is about 11% per annum pre-tax because you're paying it off with post-tax money. Mm. Are you looking at any other investments where you're very confident, zero risk, that they're going to give you 11% pre-tax? Probably not. So paying off your mortgage has multiple benefits. One is there aren't a lot of other great investments out there that give you that kind of guaranteed return. Uh, in fact, there are zero that give you great mm. guaranteed return. I'm being careful. Uh, yeah. you know, there's nothing that gives you that guaranteed. And you also have the comfort of knowing that if rates keep rising or that if anything goes wrong in your life, your debt is lower than it could have been. So paying off your mortgage makes a lot of sense. And it may be as simple as just going, I'm going to increase my repayments from monthly to fortnightly. Yep. which is one extra payment a year, believe it or not. Uh, so you're making 26 payments. You may just want to add an extra 20 bucks a fortnight, mm. 100 bucks a fortnight if you can do it, whatever it might be. That makes a huge difference over time. All the banks have and everyone has these calculators that show you the difference of those small incremental payments and it can be huge in terms of how much you save. And it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Like what I would say to Sandra and anyone else in this situation, just make sure you've got your budget and your spending plan. Mm. So each fortnight or each month or week, whatever your vibe is, you know exactly how much money is left over to invest for the future. Then you can go, we'll make a number up. I've got $500 a week, uh, a month left over. After all these interest rate rises and all this stuff, some people are like, oh, that'd be nice. But <laughs> round numbers, $500 a week left over legitimately not spoken for holiday savings or mm. new lounge upgrades and all that. You could legitimately go, all right, I'm just going to tell my employer, put $200 salary sacrifice into super mm -hmm. and pay the rest down on the mortgage. That's a strategy. Yeah. I would say one of her things was saving into cash. Don't bother with that for you. Well, <laughs> put it yeah. in an offset account if offset you're going to account, do that yeah. because yeah. cash is getting taxed. Like just that's mm. pointless. You could use an offset account. That's absolutely fine. Hey, here's a hypothetical question. Mm. And it's maybe a bit of an inside joke, but whatever. If I had a question come across my desk from a, a woman in her 40s who was on a single income, mm -hmm. what advice would you give to her about building wealth and managing money? I may or may not have given this person advice. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is now real. It's on the record. Yeah, it's real. Yeah, she yeah. may this listen to this podcast. It. So critical things. I know a little bit about this person, but if I didn't, like first question is, do you own any property? Mm. Do you have any debts? So the first thing always is if you have debt that's not deductible, you want to get rid of that, totally. particularly if you're a single person. You need to make sure you've got fantastic income protection if you are a single person. I think – and. Uh, I have kids, right? So my husband and I, it's something that we don't talk about that much, are insured to the eyeballs, mm. absolutely to the eyeballs, so that if anything happens to either of us, the house is paid off and the other one of us can afford to provide for the children and all of those sorts of things. We have income protection and so on. Um, 
a really close friend of ours lost her husband recently. The kids are three and five, right? Oh. So it's absolutely horrific. Thankfully, they were insured to the eyeballs. So as dreadful as that scenario was, they didn't have to worry about money. Yeah, money's not a problem. Yeah. If you're single, you've got the same issue. You're not worried about leaving an inheritance. You're not necessarily worried about paying for kids or anything, but you need to make sure that you're okay mm. so that you have trauma insurance, income protection, and TPD. Uh I don't know if you talk about that heaps or yeah, not yeah. at all. Yeah, I'm about to actually do an episode because a friend of mine in her early 40s just got a full trauma claim the other day from wow. a, a melanoma. Oh, my like, goodness. wild. So yeah. she's like, I can actually not stress about having to go back to work or pay rent. Yeah. So, this yeah. Is- it, it, that that to me, it's the one thing we're talking about investing, we're talking about paying off debt, we talk about all these things. If you don't have insurance in place, you just always have this one massive risk hanging over your head. Mm. So deal with that risk, make sure you've got that in place. If it's in your super fund, understand what the rules are, all that kind of stuff. If you don't know how it all works, go and see a professional. We actually use a financial advisor, not for investments, but we do use one for insurance. Yeah. Um, cause for us, we want someone who knows exactly how all the policies work. They're very complicated. Uh, we wanted yeah. someone to do that for us. So uh, make sure your insurance is in place. Have a look at your super funds. Are you invested in the right things? So again, you want to be high growth assets. You want to have a lot of exposure to Australian international equities. Uh, if you have a super fund that allows you to make a fair amount of choice, you can have a look at your tilts in that if you wish. Think about salary sacrifice, particularly if you're a high income earner, you want to be thinking about maximizing your super contributions wherever you can. I know there was another question you had about super and legislative risk and as messy as super can feel, it's still amazing from a tax perspective, right? It's still very, very attractive. Mm. So if you are not maximizing your super contributions and you have the cash flow to be able to do that. I would think about it strongly. Make sure you've got a cash buffer. I'm just giving a laundry list now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> get yourself a cash buffer to make sure everything's okay. Get your insurance in place. Make sure that's okay. Uh, get your super sorted so that it's invested in the right options and try to increase your contributions if you can. Mm. If you have an employer who allows you to do that, with matching contributions or through salary sacrifice or whatever that might be, have a look at some of those options and pay off your debt if you have any. Yeah. It's it's just like being active. Like you get results with what you pay attention to. And if Mm -hmm. you just go, look, every six months, I'm going to just review or run my eyes over my strategy. Every month, I'm going to run my eyes over my budget. Um, It's all good. Just following Sandra's question, can we use a scenario and maybe for – new people that are new to our world. Can you just give a 101 about the whole debt recycling strategy? (laughs) And we'll assume that there's a house value of $1 million Mm -hmm. because they own a one-bedroom house in Australia. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We've got a shed. Yeah, they they own a a shed. shed. And there's an existing 500K debt on the property. So, you know, there's a 50% LVR, loan-to-value ratio, everyone. So that means the loan is 50% of the house value. So how would you explain to someone uh, debt recycling and the benefits? Because it could be an option for Sandra as well. It could, it could. So what debt recycling is designed to do is take advantage of the fact that your mortgage interest is not tax deductible, right? It's a post-tax expense, but investment deductions apply if you have an investment loan. So if you borrow to invest in shares, 
managed funds, anything that produces an income. Property is the one that everybody does, but it's getting increasingly difficult. If you've only got $500,000 worth of equity in your home, of which you can only pull out, say, three hundred. You are not using that to buy property in two of the major cities in this country, uh, maybe more. So what debt recycling is designed to do is allow you to start an investment portfolio, usually using equities. So you would, you got a million dollar house, you are happy and you have the cash flow to support, very important, higher repayments, at least in the short term for a loan of $800,000. So you're going to withdraw 300 from your equity. That still leaves you an 80% LVR. So you've got 20% equity in the house still. Banks get very uncomfortable if you have less than that. I would say in the current environment, because there's real concern about value of properties falling in some areas, you might want to take less than that, right? Don't Mm. go to the max LVR and the bank may not let you anyway. But you would create an investment loan, withdraw that capital from your equity let's say 200 to be on the safe side, right? So pull yep. out 200. So you've got an investment loan for 200, a mortgage of 500. That 200 that you've pulled out, you're going to invest in an investment portfolio. So $200,000 in the ASX 200 for simplicity's sake. The lovely thing about the ASX 200 is uh, the top 200 companies in Australia pay really high dividends compared to the rest of the world. So you will get a dividend yield of about Four percent. That's eight thousand dollars a year in income coming from that portfolio. What you can do is have interest only on that loan. So you might only be paying interest of six thousand dollars a year on that loan. That'd be twelve, though, wouldn't it? Oh, you're going to be paying. Oh no, you're going to be negatively geared. That's a problem. Yeah. Anyway, the, you worked really well when rates were lower. Yeah, well, I was about to lead now. into it, saying. <laughs> Have some caution. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Have some caution. The idea though is you're taking the dividends and using them to pay off your mortgage. And then because that loan is not deductible. So you want to get that loan down as quickly as possible, but draw up the investment loan by capitalizing the interest. If you're allowed to, Mm. the difficulty is I'm not sure there's that many lenders who are super keen for people to be capitalizing interest, even on an investment loan at the moment. So you might be going to a margin lender to do that. Then you're paying much higher interest and so on. So Debt recycling is not a bad strategy um, and it can work incredibly well. So the idea is you're taking your investment income, using it to pay off your mortgage and not paying off as much of the interest on your deductible loan. Mm. The concern is more the complexity of it going, am I ensuring that I'm not getting over my LVR total for the property? Do I not have too much interest rate risk? If anything goes wrong, can I pay off the loan at eight hundred dollars or $700,000 rather than five hundred? that kind of stuff? So it's not a bad strategy. It can work really well if you're on top of your numbers and you manage your cash flow really well and you've got a lender who's amenable. Uh, it's not as easy as it was a couple of years ago. Mm. And I always, you know, used to tell clients and I'd still say people on the podcast, like if you've got young kids that aren't in school yet and you're thinking about these strategies, like don't go full ham and borrow money to investing equities and all this because there could be a case in a couple of years that your household expenses increase and you need to sell down equities to pay off debt because you need the cash flow or situation changes. I would just caution with some of these gearing or debt recycling strategies, you need to be pretty much at a a critical mass or at the top of your growth curve or establishment curve, both with the, the house, the mortgage and your living and career situation. Is that a fair 
statement. Yeah, I really, I really like that assessment. I think either do it when you're really young yeah, and you're happy to take a ton of risk or do it once you're very well established. Yeah. In that middle stage of life it's where- It's so fluid, isn't it? It's really fluid and your situation changes all the time. I have a friend uh, who has said more than once, I work too hard to be this broke, mm. um, where an unexpected expense came along and they had to borrow money from a parent mm. to pay this expense. And it was not a large amount of money, as in I could have lent it to her at that point in time mm. without doing anything complicated. And I was so shocked because I'm fairly sure they earn more money than we do. But it was just, it was really surprising that they were so close to the wire Mm. even on really high incomes. But it's this middle stage of life, right, where you've got a lot of things going on and things can just happen. So I think make sure you've got a good handle on everything before you get into mm. some of these. Yeah. They're not for the faint of heart. Not at all. And in finishing, Uncle Peter, mm-hmm. oh, Mr. Yeah. Thornhill, was, yeah. he the, was he the ex- um, MLC advisor that had just bought CBA shares forever or am I getting confused with someone? I don't think he was that. Was, Nothing in his bio suggests that he's an MLC someone, advisor. There was an But he was very frequently used by MLC advisors oh, to they, speak to clients yeah, they about strategy. Out, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There was absolutely. another, maybe I would say, older gentleman who's running around um, the money world and his whole strategy is just buy CBA shares <laughs> and get the dividend So Peter, Peter has not mentioned CBA shares, no, so I'll give you that. So no. maybe not the same person. Um, but anyway, so look, interesting view. I I really liked his concepts around, you know, rent lifestyle. So, if, you know, I mm-hmm. drive a Toyota and if I want to go on a holiday, I'll rent a nice car and enjoy that. Yeah, I like the idea of absolutely outsourcing your investing management and just getting mm-hmm. on with your life. And I mm-hmm. kind of teach, focus more on your shovel of generating wealth and shoveling money into your portfolio. Uh, oh, yeah. I think that's kind of my strategy and I kind of outsource the investment management, if you will, to index-based ETFs. Um, mm-hmm. This whole LIC thing though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. I don't know. I... It is, it's an older school vehicle. Mm-hmm. Like what's your view? And maybe you can just give the quick 101 LIC. <laughs> but we have to explain the issue yeah. first. So Peter, so I interviewed him on my podcast and he's extremely well regarded by people who've been around for a long time for having a simple effective strategy, right? Like he, he has a strategy which is basically spend less than you earn, put money in the market, don't think about it at all, like just keep buying. And over time, what you're concerned about is the dividends and you'll live off those indefinitely and it's all marvellous, right? So very straightforward and there's lots of variations of that theme from different investment professionals out there, particularly the ones who kind of tell people to follow their strategy. It's just that most of them talk about ETFs. He talks about LICs. And let's be honest, when he first started, there weren't any ETFs. He was talking about LICs because they were what existed at the time. Mm. The critical thing that matters as an investor is an LIC is a listed investment company. A company is a different entity Mm. to a trust. So an ETF is an exchange traded fund, but it's a trust, which means that everything within it flows directly through to the underlying holder. Whereas an LIC, because it's a company, they get to decide 
what they distribute to you mm. as an investor. So managed funds before they were listed on the ASX worked in the same way as ETFs do with the exception of that issue buying in the morning and so on. Um, you are paying the price of the underlying asset on that day. That's what you're paying for. There's a small management fee. When they get distributions and dividends from all the companies in it twice or four times a year, they just pay you your proportion of that mm. and you get that. So it's very fixed. It's all mathematical. You can run them on a computer, which is why they're super cheap to run. Everything is mathematically calculated. It's very straightforward. With an LIC, they're still investing on lots of underlying companies on your behalf, but they're professionally managed. So they're not done by computer. Someone's making decisions about what they're investing in. An active and management, if you will. A very active <laughs> management. Yes, indeed. Although an ETF, you can have actively you managed can. ETFs, but the structure is still a trust and everything still flows through to you. Yes. On the LIC side, it all gets piled into the company. So if they get 10 dividends because they hold 10 underlying companies that they're invested in, right, plus cash or whatever else, and they all flow into the company and that adds up to $100, they might go, I'm going to pay out 80 bucks this year and we'll just keep 20 and you will get that. And it will be treated as a dividend and you will be taxed accordingly. The biggest issue with LICs that most people feel is not that. It's not the fact that you don't get the underlying uh, sort of mathematical calculation just paid directly to you. That's not what bothers people. What bothers people is they trade at the price that people are willing to pay for the LIC, not at the underlying value of the assets. The underlying value of the assets is called net tangible assets, the value of those. They could be $100 and yet this stupid thing is trading at $75 because the market has decided that's all they're willing to pay. Yeah, so there could be legitimate value there. Yeah, 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 but you could be missing out on $25 of legitimate value mm. because you can only sell your LIC for $75 despite the fact that the underlying assets of that LIC mm. are worth 100 And that's why they've become increasingly unpopular over time because this gap between what the assets are worth and what people are willing to pay for them mm. has been getting bigger and bigger. And some fund managers are going around trying to buy them up and liquidate them and turn them into ETFs and do all sorts of things to close this gap yeah. between the market price and what your what your asset theoretically is worth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just did some Googling on mm. Peter. He, yeah, and I maybe his strategy has also changed to it because he's been on the record of saying he basically did a smash and grab on CBA during the GFC and he's, I'm just looking at a Forbes article, article for 2022 he gets mm -hmm. 400k a year in dividend income. Um, now, lucky Peter. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> amount of money. Um, mm -hmm. Probably lots of franking credits there. Dare I say? Um, but I think my takeaway from that was, and I would assume I don't know his age. It's got to be over sixty. Well and truly yeah. over seventeen yeah. would be my guess. Well, I'm so trying talked, to be. It talked about where he's working in the seventies. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just was trying to be not ageist and all that stuff. <laughs> I get accused of everything, Gemma. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> so his primary concern is obviously income stability. Yeah. And dividend stability. And he yes. gets that from a lick because they can just, do the people call them licks or whatever? Um, yeah, 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 they do. Because, yeah, he just, just needs a dividend growth. And yeah. I just think a strategy for someone else isn't a strategy for you. And as much as yeah. I'm saying, hey, if you're just getting started and you don't know where to start, if you did happen to buy IOZ, the top 200 companies, 
that's a good place to start. It might actually not be for you, but mm. it's probably the least harm in getting started because it's mm. not single stock, it's diversified, it's Australia, so at least you understand it. You can see on the news that indice each night. So, yeah, I, I it was an interesting discussion. Um, and, you know, I didn't run out and sell all my ETFs and buy listed <laughs> investment companies after that episode. I know you did, Gemma, because... You know. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah. that's what I did. No, it's, like, I find it really interesting. I think if nothing else, his strategy is directionally correct for most people, mm. right? It is... Spend less than you earn. Yeah, invest the rest. <laughs> you don't waste. Invest the rest. Build it up over time. Yep. It will be your income stream that matters when you're in your 70s, right? It absolutely will be regardless of your age when you start. Mm. So I think it's directionally correct. And the nuances around debt recycling and around LICs versus ETFs and whatever, they're your choices to make. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I did email his website to try and get him on the show because, you know, I'm he's been investing more than I've been times than I've been alive. So I've definitely want to learn from him, but um, mm. it is thought provoking. It's a strategy. I personally don't hold LICs, um, mm. but yeah, it's, yeah, just because it's one thing doesn't mean it's for everyone. I think your point is absolutely correct. Also what worked for him may not work for mm. you. My parents told me to buy bank shares, right? Because I was started investing at the end of the 90s. Don't put money in the bank, own the bank. <laughs> and it was such a thing at the end of the 90s, like you can never go wrong with bank shares. Rubbish. You can absolutely go wrong, wrong with bank shares. Um, Depends which you know, bank you buy. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you bought one of them, you were fine. If you bought the others, you were not fine yeah. at the particular time I started. And, you know, that's one of the biggest thing I've learned. Like, all strategies will get you somewhere over time. The one that's perfect for any particular time may be different, but they all involve at some point mm. investing more over time frequently. The specifics, I would actually caution against listening to someone who absolutely nailed it 20 years ago because the specifics have probably changed. Yeah. But the general strategy is probably the same. Yeah, I, I've got this saying in finishing Glenn James, I can't be your guru. I'm just facilitating conversation. If my mouth's moving, <laughs> assume it's an ad. Um, <laughs> I'm just having a chat with people. Um, <laughs> no, it's all good. Hey, uh, we've covered a lot of ground. I need to let you go. Anything you wanted to say in finishing today? No, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Will you come back? Do I will. I'd love to. So I do episodes with a colleague of mine who... I don't know if you're aware. Have you heard of the company Money Sherpa or Life Sherpa? Vince Scully, online financial advice. No, anyway, um, I'm licensed through him, and he's a you know we call him the Silver Fox. He's in his 60s, and we do these campfire chat episodes, and we just kind of have these discussions uh, with usually Vince, myself, and um, someone else. So we might get you on maybe towards the end of the year to come into the studio at North Sydney and have a campfire chat with us. And we just answer listener questions and chew the fat. Yeah, that'd be cool. All right. You can subscribe to Gemma Dale's podcast, wherever you're listening to this, just search Gemma Dale or um, <laughs> yes. Your Wealth. Your Wealth. Your Wealth. I don't think I don't, it's probably got my name. It's got my face on yeah. it. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> wild, isn't it, when you plaster it all over podcast artwork. Uh, and Gemma is the head of Investing Behaviour and SMSF at NabTrade. Thanks, Gemma. Thank you. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. 
My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.